0: Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. Amen. I never met Her Majesty the Queen personally, and that is a regret I carry. I should have liked the opportunity to meet her face to face and to experience a few moments of greeting or conversation with her. However, like that game, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon and the social principle, the six degrees of separation, it turns out that I have only one degree of separation from Her Majesty. As a schoolgirl, growing up in Scotland, my wife, Sarah, worked as a guide at Linlithgow Palace and had the opportunity to meet the Queen on a royal visit. She duly practised and performed her curtsy with great dignity, or so we are told. Sarah didn't have TV cameras on hand to preserve her curtsy for posterity. Poor old Liz trust. And if that degree of separation via Sarah is a little tenuous, then perhaps we might all reflect on the closeness that each of us actually had to Her Majesty through the leaders of our church. Our bishops, Sarah and Joanne, had met Her Majesty, as had our various bishops beforehand. Archbishop Justin Welby came to visit us here at St John's a few years ago and spent over an hour in prayer with several of us here today. And he spent long periods of time in an audience with Her Majesty. And even Hoxton itself held a place of affection in Her Majesty's heart. For as a child, she and her sister were brought regularly by their nanny to the Geoffrey Museum on Kingston Road. So it turns out that although I never met the Queen personally, she was not a remote figure Indeed, she was closer to me than perhaps I realised. And in that sense, reflecting upon her life and death reminds me that God himself is not far off, remote, transcendent, but in Christ is always closer than we dare to think, ask, or imagine. And I want to briefly explore this theme today as we reflect on the life of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and as we journey through this period of national mourning. The theme that our earthly sovereign is for us a symbol and a sign of our eternal sovereign, that the queens and kings of earth may in some peculiar way direct our gaze to the eternal King of heaven. We began our worship today singing the hymn, which is known to have been Her Majesty's favourite hymn, Praise My Soul, The King of Heaven. And I think it's very revealing that this was her favourite hymn. For it shows that Queen Elizabeth never thought of herself as absolute or ultimate in her sovereignty. She knew that there was a king of heaven to whom all ultimate obedience and worship was due. Of course, the Christian scriptures at the heart of the queen's faith cast a vision of godly kingship by which all earthly sovereigns are informed and measured. Queen Elizabeth knew that the biblical vision of kingship culminates in the coming of God as king in the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in this royal drama, in the biblical vision of kingship, the cradle matters more than the crown, the thorns more than the throne. Jesus is high and lifted up, not on a royal balcony, but a rugged cross. And indeed, the biblical vision of monarchy is ambivalent and perhaps unexpected in some ways. At the end of the period of judges, as the Israelites are settled in the land promised them in the exodus from Egypt, the leader and prophet Samuel is confronted by the people. Give us a king like other nations, they cry. Samuel, under God's instruction, warns them that earthly kings will lord it over them oppressing and exploiting the poor and the vulnerable for their own gain. Nonetheless, the people cry for a king, and God grants them their wishes. The first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, show the good, the bad, and the downright ugly of monarchical rule. Saul is deceitful and violent. David has a heart after God's and yet succumbs to unbridled lust and a murderous cover-up. Solomon has great wisdom and a commitment to worship, but is besotted by the riches and the glories of other nations. And those who come after the first three demonstrate clearly that kingship in Israel is a mixed affair. Some kings of Israel are downright dishonest and cruel, while others resist idolatry and restore God's law. And so we can read in 2 Chronicles 14.1, How Abijah rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, Asa, his son, succeeded him as king, and in his days, the country was at peace for ten years. Asa is reported in Scripture as being a godly king, and under his reign, the country experiences peace, shalom. It's perhaps an insight upon which we might pause and reflect. Because without wanting to claim that all has been perfect in our country these past 70 years, we have enjoyed relative peace within our borders, and many aspects of our society and culture have flourished during the Queen's reign. But to return to the biblical vision of kingship, we turn to Psalm 72, which we heard read a few moments ago. The psalm has a caption at its beginning, of Solomon, but this may not actually be to suggest that it's written by Solomon, King Solomon, but that it's written about King Solomon. Indeed, the final verse suggests that it is a prayer of King David, Solomon's father, perhaps associated with the occasion of Solomon's anointing as king in 1 Kings chapter 1, while David was still alive. And the Bible commentator Matthew Henry claims that this psalm is about Solomon and his reign in part but yet points to one greater than Solomon yet to come, Jesus himself. And in this sense, we can see how the biblical vision of kingship suggests ways in which a sovereign might reflect in part the true and eternal sovereign that is God. Like C.S. Lewis's Shadowlands, earthly sovereigns give us a glimpse into the greater reality yet to come reading Psalm 72, I think there are three key themes concerning kingship that help us to see the nature of our great King Jesus. First, a concern for justice. Second, a focus for worship. And third, a promise of faithfulness. First, a concern for justice. The first four verses prioritize the need for the King to act with God's justice and righteousness which will be seen by sharing prosperity and fruit, verse 3, and defending the afflicted, saving the children and the needy, and combating oppressors, in verse 4. This concern is repeated in verses 12 to 14, where the godly king will, quote, take pity on the weak and the needy. He will have concern for those who are without help or without advocate. The vulnerable, the scriptures say, are precious in his sight. So first, a concern for justice. Second, a focus for worship. Verses 9 to 11 speak of the rulers of distant lands, Sheba and Seba, coming to pay homage to the king. In other words, they will recognize his God-anointed position and they will honor God as they honor him. Gifts are brought in gratitude and recognition of his splendor. Verses 15 to 17 repeat this refrain for gifts, gold and glory to be given to the king in response to his goodness and his love. So first, a concern for justice. Second, a focus for worship. Third, a promise of faithfulness. Verses 5 to 8 express hope for an unending reign of the godly king. Like sun and moon, like the endlessness of the sea, the people hope for unending godly reign. Verse 17 concludes... May his name endure forever. A concern for justice, a focus for worship, a promise of faithfulness. These three features of kingship expressed in Psalm 72 are offered in hope and anticipation of King Solomon's rule. But more deeply, they look for the kingly rule of God himself. These verses express the very nature of God, righteous and just, worthy of worship, faithful forever, and expect the earthly sovereign to bear witness to this model of kingship. I believe that Queen Elizabeth II lived her life in accordance with this biblical vision of kingship expressed in Psalm 72. She was known to have had great concern for all the subjects of her realm, with a keen interest in the lives of everyday people up and down the length and breadth of this country and across the Commonwealth. She visited communities, taking time to speak with people about their lives. Without meddling in parliamentary politics, she was known to press her prime ministers in their weekly audience with probing questions that would prompt efforts towards a more just society. She modelled godly righteousness in her personal conduct, but also, in the words of hope, and love that she spoke to each of us in Christmas, at Christmas in particular. She received the gifts and the devotion of her people with grace and affection. Expressions of appreciation and loyalty never made her puffed up, proud or big-headed, so far as we can tell. I think that this is because she knew that she was only a sign and a symbol. That the only person truly worthy of worship is Jesus himself. In her coronation, there was one key section that was hidden from the view of the newly introduced TV cameras, and that was her anointing with oil. And in this moment, she was stripped of all the regal gowns, and she simply knelt in simplicity on the floor of Westminster Abbey to be anointed with oil for this special vocation. As Mark Green at the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity puts it, it was the moment when she dedicated herself to God to serve him by serving God. Her people. She was never the object of worship herself. Again, her Christmas addresses made clear that she directed all her devotion to God. Finally, she continued in faithful service to the very last. Seventy years is an extraordinary duration for such steadfast and sacrificial public service. Her presence suggested stability in an ever-changing world. Her reign rode over the tides and the waves of fad and fashion. And I wonder if our appreciation for her faithful service over the decades hints at our own yearning for the eternal. Perhaps despite the instant fix and immediate satisfaction culture of our day, we know deep in our hearts that good things take time and that a commitment over time be that expressed in marriage, family, friendship, or public service, profoundly speaks of the steadfast faithfulness and love of God, which endure forever. Queen Elizabeth II was a type of Christ. That is to say, she bore the imprint and the impression of Jesus Christ in her words and in her works we could see something of the reality of Jesus in her, a mark, a presence, a profound reality. Was she perfect? No, of course not. She was a sinner saved by grace, just as all of us are. But she did resolve at an early age to live her life in the service of others. And one way in which she served our nation was to remind us of the gospel of Jesus. I've begun to plan my sermon for next Sunday with the working title, The Gospel According to Queen Elizabeth II. But to give a sneak preview, here's some words from her Christmas message in 2012. She said this This is the time of year when we remember that God sent His only Son to serve, not to be served. He restored love and service to the center of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. I never met the Queen personally. I never received an invitation to an audience at the palace. But I have received an invitation from the eternal sovereign, the King of heaven and the Lord of earth, Jesus Christ. I have received an invitation to know God as Father, Lord and King. And the invitation, it turns out, was not delivered by royal mail, but was personally hand-delivered to me by King Jesus himself. It was hand-delivered by those hands which flung stars into space, those hands which touched the outcast and drew them in, those hands that were nailed to the cross in sacrificial love, and hands that now stand at the door of my heart and knock. My invitation to the palace for an audience with the sovereign turns out not to involve a grand journey and a special outfit, but only a simple response. For King Jesus himself stands at the door of your heart and knocks, and if we will open that door, he will come in and make his palace in the home of our hearts. Queen Elizabeth II was for us a sign of And a symbol of the loving kindness of God. An earthly queen who pointed to a heavenly king. Our eternal sovereign, King Jesus himself, stands again today at the door of your heart and he knocks. Will you welcome him again to make your heart his home and your life his palace? Are you ready for an audience with the king? If you're able, would you stand and pray with me? King Jesus, you are righteous and just, worthy of worship, faithful forever. You sit enthroned for all eternity, high above all earthly powers and rulers, outlasting kingdoms and empires. And yet you also come near to each one of us, You stand at the door of our hearts and you knock. You invite us to make our heart your home. Give us courage and boldness, we pray, to open that door afresh, to receive you in. to accept you as our eternal sovereign, our Lord and King. And with Queen Elizabeth II, may we have the courage, the boldness to proclaim and confess your name, King Jesus, as sovereign over us.